How's it going, everybody? We are joined by Father Daly. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you, Christian. Thank you so, so I'm bringing you on to to talk about a relatively obscure figure, but a very important one nonetheless. Uh, let's see if I can get his name right. Uh, Leontius of Byzantium. Is that is that right? That's got you got it. Okay, okay, good. So, um, will, will you give us a bit of a of a historical background to what we know about his life, and then right after that, we'll we'll get into a bit of his Christology. Okay. Well, we don't know an awful lot about his life. Uh, we know from mentions by other authors of the time that he was active and writing probably in the early 6th century, somewhere around the 530s and 540s. And there's a collection of monastic biographies that we have by Cyril of Scythopolis, which is very interesting, actually. And Cyril mentions somebody by that name who was a monk of Palestine in the early 6th century, the early uh, 500s. And by a variety of guesses and calculations, which I won't go through here, but which I mentioned in the introduction to my text, uh, it's probable this is the guy. He seems to have been a, a native of Constantinople, the capital. He must have had a very good educa education. He knows a lot about Aristotelian philosophy and logic. And he's apparently a monk of one of the monasteries in Palestine in the 520s and 530s and 540s. And there he got drawn into some of these controversies about the, the real nature and person of Christ. Who is, who is Jesus really? What defines his being? What uh, enables him to be the savior of the world? And as you know, a lot of this had been worked out in the great councils of the fifth century at Ephesus and then in 451 at Chalcedon at the, after a long struggle between St. Cyril and Nestorius of Constantinople. So it's in the wake of Chalcedon, and it's a great definition, which people still look at as one of the landmarks of Christology, uh, that we find <clears throat> Leontius of Byzantium. And you could designate him, I think, as a, as a strict Chalcedonian, someone who wants to defend the definition of Chalcedon, that Jesus is one individual, one person, one agent, in two natures simultaneously, in the nature of God and the nature of a human being, which are incompatible with each other in some ways, which are totally different from each other in any case. And yet Jesus inhabits them both as his natures, which is the way of saying that he is, as we say, truly God and truly human, that he is both at once. And because of that, he can act as both at once and be our savior. And so that's kind of the, the basic understanding of Jesus that Leontius is trying to defend and make sense of in a philosophical way. So, what what uh, treatises did he write? Because if I if I'm understanding correctly, you you were actually the one who who translated these these treatises and put them together in a in a volume, so you know them a bit more than uh, <laughs> the average guy. Here's the volume. Uh, it's kind of a, a big fat one, but the uh, text of Leontius is only middle hundred pages or so. Yeah, he. Um, he uh, wrote these probably in, in the 530s and 540s in a world of controversy and debate. And they're all about the person of Christ. They've been known through a Latin translation since I think 1595, but nobody had ever fully edited the, the Greek text, which is what I did for my doctoral thesis a number of years ago in Oxford and eventually published it and translated it. Uh, so that's what, yeah, and a long introduction if you want to get into it, but it's, um, I think it's very interesting stuff. The world he lived in, probably in 
Constantinople and the Middle East was at that time a pretty sophisticated world. A lot of people with good education who had studied philosophy and who were interested in analyzing philosophically the message of the Gospels and the message of the Church. And so it's, it's an era of early theological debate. I often think it's kind of the first appearance of what we call scholasticism in a very different sense from what we have in the medieval West. There are no universities, as far as we know. There are no schools where this is done. But people had studied a lot of philosophy and theology and were willing to debate in philosophical terms the teaching of the church and the position of the church. And so so have, I saw... Go ahead. It's sort of the earliest appearance of scholastic theology and philosophy. Yeah, I saw a surprising amount of, of Aristotle when I was reading okay. the text. So so how how, would, how did Aristotle really really impact his, his writings? Well, Aristotle uh, provided a, a kind of a, a method, I think, for many people in philosophy and theology. Uh, he had formalized what the logic that we use in reasoning. Uh, and people in the schools often studied Aristotle's logical works. Um, but they were kind of commonly commonly used for sort of what we would, we would call undergraduate philosophical teaching. Um, whatever you were doing, whether you were a Christian or a pagan or a Jewish person, um, you, Aristotle might well be what you would study to get a, a, a clearer understanding of how we reason, what, what good reasoning is, what logic is. Uh, and Leontius certainly in the, in the early sixth century is uh, somebody who draws on Aristotle and reasoning a lot. Um, we don't know exactly where he did this. Um, there is this one monastic biographer that we have from around the same time who speaks of a monk named Leontius of Byzantium, maybe the same guy, it probably is, who was educated in Constantinople, who then moved to Palestine where he worked, he lived in a monastery, with, which was kind of an intellectual monastery, and with a bunch of other monks who were interested in, in philosophy and logic. Uh, he studied the decrees of the councils. And they got into all kinds of debates and arguments about these things, but he eventually presented them also in the court of the emperor in Constantinople. So um, what was the the world he was really, really living in? How, because he's writing against, um, if he's writing against the Nestorians and then uh, and then the, what we call now the Miaphysites. Yeah. So the, the world he was living in, did he have much interaction? Was it, was it kind of just a, a, a a mishmash of these different groups where everybody was fighting was a kind of just a foregone conclusion. How was, how, how was this going on? It probably was not a foregone conclusion. I think the church had taken an official position on many of the questions to do with the person of Christ and the natures, the reality of Christ. Um, but not everybody bought those. And so in the Christian world itself, there were a number of different groups. There were people who would see themselves as the Orthodox who accepted as normative, the decisions of the great councils of Nicaea and Constantinople I and of Ephesus and of Chalcedon. But uh, there are also those who tended in other directions. The ancestors of what we call the Miaphysites or Monophysites, people who said that Christ has one nature, one dynamic reality, which is both divine and human. And then there are those who are very divisive in their Christology and say, no, you have never reduced to one the humanity of Christ and the divinity of Christ without doing one or the other an injustice. Uh, and both sides had something to say for themselves, but they didn't use the same terms in the same way. Uh, and the church's position was, we have to say that Jesus is fully God, fully the Son of God, one of the Trinity, 
but he's also fully human in his incarnation, one of us, and not simply pretending to be one of us or looking like one of us. He really is. He really got sick. He really had to tie his shoes in the morning. He really had to do all these things that humans do. And somehow the mystery of Christ is that he is both at once and therefore saves us who are just humans. So when when it comes to his his theology, who is he exactly deriving from? I'm assuming he's deriving from uh, obviously Saint Cyril, yeah. uh, but but who else is are his big impacts that he's synthesizing uh, in order to bring it to bear against the uh, Miaphysites and then the uh, Nestorians? Well, uh, Saint Cyril is the is the big one, and apparently early in his life he says that he is influenced by. Theodore Mopsuestia and Theodore Osiris. Those names may not be household words, but they're both represented as what we call the Antiochene school, the critics of Cyril and of the people who emphasize the unity of Christ. And they were people who emphasize the duality of Christ, that his humanity is full and uh, sufficient. His, his divinity also is full and sufficient. He has two wills, two minds. He has two ways of operating. Somehow they, they act as one. And it was felt that that was insufficient to explain the unity of Christ, but also that Cyril's approach could get sometimes too unitive, could not take fully into consideration the humanity of Christ, especially. So how do you balance the two? I, I think Leontius tends more in the direction of Cyril, but he can be critical too. And his attempt is to say, how do you really take seriously the formulation of Chalcedon, that Christ is a single hypostasis, a single acting individual or person, as we would say, and also that he is this in full humanity and in full divinity, that he possesses them both as his and acts in them both together. That's a great mystery, and we never can explain it fully, but somehow we have to stay in that ballpark. We've got to talk about what Christ is and who he is. So how did, how did, uh, what, what makes uh, Leontius special? How did he differ at all from his, his former, uh, the, the former writers in the church? What, how did he advance and develop the, the science of theology in this area? Well, he does try to represent the tradition, so he's not totally different. But I think he, he does it mainly by trying to be more academic in what he's saying. He really has a good education. We don't know where he got it from. But he brings this to bear on the way he analyzes the complexities of the church's teaching. Um, and so he will try to define terms. He will try to argue in logical, logical course. He's something like the medieval scholastics, they say, uh, which is a little bit unusual for the ancient world. At least he's one of the first ones to do that. Later on, after him, a number of others came who did the same thing. And an example who is, I think, in many ways in the same school is St. Maximus the Confessor, who became rather famous in the last 50 years. Maximus really argues more on the question of the wills and the will of Christ, uh, which was a big problem in the seventh century, and wants to argue that Christ has two wills which never subsume each other, and yet he's a single person, a single mind. Um, but Leontius goes before that and is a bit more um, basic, if you want. Uh, and I'll use it in a more academic way. So how how was Leontius's impact on later Christology? How how did that um, that go through? Was was he more of a forgotten figure whose theology was kind of needed a resourcement, or did he 
was he uh, fully integrated into the tradition and uh, recognized as a faithful disciple and uh, and developer on St. Cyril's theology. I think he was more of a forgotten figure, to be fully honest. Um, people knew his name from various you know, biographies and knew he was a an important and orthodox figure. But his stuff is really not very not very inspiring. It's pretty theoretical. I find it fascinating, but it is kind of like reading uh, a medieval logician or something. Whereas Saint Cyril uh, is much more homiletic, uh, writes about you know Christ in a much warmer way that appeals to the soul, the spirit, and he also writes a lot more that we have for him. We only have six complete works of Leontius, so he's a much smaller figure on the stage. But I think he, what he contributes, is the academic and logical ability to make sense of these two slightly different traditions. Um, and where where he got this from, we don't know exactly, but he, he was able to bring a highly analytical mind, a logical mind, to the tradition. So I've heard, um, if, if my very, very good resource, but if you go on the Wikipedia page about Leontius of Byzantium, most of the stuff is probably from uh, citing back to to your work, yeah. but it, it says that he came up with the idea of Christ's human nature being anhypostatic and then yeah. And, and hypostasized in the hypostasis of the of the sun. So what is it? Is that exactly accurate to say that he came up with that, or he was the originator of that idea, or is that more of a popular myth? That's really more. That's the uh, the phrase and the idea that's usually associated with him. There's a famous passage in the first of these six books that he wrote, uh, where he says that what we look for in Christ is that his humanity is in hypostatosis and hypostatized uh, in the person of the second, the second person of the Trinity. Uh, and some have seen that to be emphasizing the, the Greek prefix n, that he's hypostatized inside of the hypothesis of the Trinity, whatever that would mean. But they see it as kind of an inclusion or a, a, um, a taking of the human reality of Christ into the divine. And that's a nice idea. I don't think, what he, I don't think it's exactly what he's saying. And I've argued that, um, and hypostatized simply means hypostatized, made an individual. And he will say that any nature, in order to be concrete, has to be anhypostatized. So you are a, a human hypostasis. I'm another one. We will share the same human nature, which means we function basically the same way. We have the same life pattern and so on. But that each of us is a different concrete instance of that. And so therefore, each of us is unique. And to be hypostatized, the antipostatos means you're a unique example of species X, species Y. Um, and I, I, I think that's really all he's saying in that. So it doesn't quite mean why some of the 19th century uh, historians of doctrine made it out to be. Okay. So when, when it comes to being able to read uh, Leontius, because I'm going to be very honest, uh, when, when, I, when I did read... Um, some of his treatises it was very difficult and i'm somebody who who reads saint thomas as as my main main food in the in the morning so to speak so reading him was was a bit of a actual struggle i've I read cyril I've, i'm very familiar with scholastic language but he's a bit of a difficult read so um and i'm it has nothing to do with the translation work but what do you suggest when it comes to actually engaging with uh, Leonti Leontius's works? 
Well, you know, I think you're right, first of all. We're not used to Greek scholasticism as we are to Latin scholasticism, which is later and in a language that's closer to ours. But I think there are a lot of analogies, there are similarities between what, say, someone like Peter Lombard or Duns Scotus or St. Thomas are doing uh, with medieval logic and metaphysics and what Leontius and his contemporaries are doing with sixth century Greek metaphysics. You know, they're taking a, a school of theology, a school of philosophy, excuse me, which is basically similar, basically Aristotelian in both cases, and try to use that as, as the lens through which they look at the uh, dogmatic tradition of the church, through which they look at the Bible and the belief of Christians. So that there's, there's an analogy, but we're just not used to the terminology, I think, and it is more difficult to read. Uh, I find a lot of uh, similarities, though, between him and uh, medieval Latin scholasticism. So what are, are there any other authors who are doing similar things to Leontius at, at this time? Because I've read the, the only other author I can think of who would be any, anything like him, except Cyril, of course, would be uh, I've read Severus of Antioch's works. And there seemed to be a little bit of similarity, especially in style and, and language to to Leontius, but obviously uh, Leontius is writing against uh, the, the ideas of, of Severus. So um, that, is there anybody else who's who's doing that? Well, a number of his time, most people that aren't very well known, but one is Boethius who comes a little later in the Latin West. Boethius was a, a civil servant, basically a very bright, but uneducated man early in his life who then kind of retired early and studied Christian theology and philosophy and became a Christian and then wrote about it. He'd be one person who's also steeped in the Aristotelian tradition. And then later on in the seventh century, you have especially St. Maximus, the confessor, who was writing in, in the uh, 640s and 650s. So that's 100 years after Leontius, but who is very much in the same mind cast and who Hans Orsfeld Balthazar kind of rediscovered him and made him well known in the 1940s. And so Balthazar's thought, and he has a great book on, on Maximus, uh, that really kind of presents him to the modern world. Uh, he, uh, Maximus also is using different literary forms. Most of his stuff is either sermons or letters or meditations. Whereas Leontius's things seem to be public debates. But the uh, basic mind cast is very similar. And the best introduction to him is to read Balthazar's book on him. I've, I've, uh, I just read Ambiguum Seven, and that is just a mind-blowing passage right there. It's so, it's so deep. Uh, reading, reading that passage, it just gives you a whole different view of of reality, really. So, when it comes to uh, diving into Leontius, we have his six treatises that that you helpfully translated. Is there um, first secondary sources that are any, anywhere near a good introductory level uh, read? And then, um, what what treatises do you think we should uh, be hopping into to to get used to his thought? Well, I, I wouldn't hop into any of them unless you really like this kind of stuff because it is pretty challenging. It's like hopping into a cold pool. But uh, they're they're all fairly short, and uh, I think the most famous one uh, is called "Against the Nestorians and the Eutychians," who are the main parties in the Christological debate. And he writes a thing that he hopes he's going to be offering answers to both sides. That's kind of even-handed. I think his most interesting work uh, is called um, Against the Afartists, against the, there's another Christological heresy who argued that the 
the humanity of Jesus is human, but incorruptible. So it's different qualitatively from yours and mine. He, it can't, he couldn't have gotten sick. Uh, he couldn't have uh, stubbed, his, stubbed his toe. I mean, Jesus was, was fully human, but human in a way that goes beyond our experience of humanity. Leontius thinks that's nonsense. He thinks Jesus had normal humanity, but without sin. Uh, and therefore that what he experienced on the cross and during his life was really the same things that we experience. That's a beautiful treatise uh, um, it, it, against the authorities. Um, but these things are, there are many translations. I, I translated them in my volume here, but not, nobody's gonna come across that unless you go to a theological library. Uh, so um, the only other uh, area in which I can think where uh, Leontius is uh, really pops up is with the Agnoite. Yeah. That's that's the only other place I've seen him. Uh, card, uh, I don't think it's Cardinal uh, Pole. Pole in his dogmatic theology. Um, Cardinal Pole is a different person. Pole, the dogmatic theologian. Uh, he he covers. Uh, he mentions uh, Leontius's name in regard to the Agnoite, saying, uh, "I think the quote is that." The earlier fathers writing on this passage, talking about the passage about Christ not knowing the day and the hour, are basically useless on this passage. I think that was that was the quote that he got from Leontius. So, what I haven't been able to find that that treatise by him um, on the Agnoite. So, where what, what are first? What are the Agnoite? And second, uh, where does he write about them if he does? Well, he, that's a different Leontius. That's Leontius at Jerusalem. I think it's not this guy. Uh, there are several Leontii roaming around at this period. So he doesn't really deal with them. They were, as I recall, uh, a branch of the Monophysites who thought there was one reality in Christ, which is a divinized humanity. And I think that uh, the question was, is Jesus ignorant of anything? Is there anything he doesn't know? Or is his human mind transformed by his divine knowledge? But Leontius doesn't get into that. That's uh, probably 20 years after his death. Oh, okay. So, um, because I have heard that these two figures of Leontius of Jerusalem and Leontius of Byzantium are are often confused uh, right. with one another. Right. Leontius of Jerusalem, probably twenty or thirty years younger, uh, and is it a different a different guy? Okay, I think that's I think that's about all the questions I have. Is there anything that you any avenues you would like to uh, like to go down when it comes to Leontius? Well, no, I, I think it's, I, I love doing the work on this, and I think it's very interesting stuff. It gives us a different perspective on patristic theology. It reminds us that they were interested also in, you know, highly speculative uh, intellectual questions, as well as the more pastoral ones. And so we don't want to think of them as doing the pastoral work and leaving it up to Aquinas and Scotus to do all the university work. There were no universities at that time, as far as we know, back in the sixth century. But people somehow read Aristotle and studied it and wrote treatises in, in conversation with each other that uh, speculated a lot of these things. So it's a very interesting part of Christian history, something that may, makes understand more deeply the immense reality of the church's uh, speculation of the church's intellectual life. Um, the Byzantine tradition knew him a bit better than the West, but they haven't done much with him either. So. It's, I hope people will begin to read him in the future. Okay, thank you. Thank you for, for coming on. Um, any, 
I, I usually ask if uh, if you have anything to plug, but I'm assuming since you said you were you're retired, you kind of just wanna wanna live in peace now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was at Notre Dame for 25 years, and I uh, love being there. I'm a Jesuit, and I love being a Jesuit. I taught at the Jesuit School of Theology in Boston before I went to Notre Dame. So those are two big chapters in my life. Thank you. Thank you for, for coming on. And uh, for everybody watching, um, later tonight at 8 p.m., I'll be bringing on somebody to talk about uh, the, the importance of uh, Greek in the biblical languages. So mm -hmm. um, that that's what I'll be doing later at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard. So everybody watching right now, uh, I will see you then. And thank you, Father Daly, for coming on. Thank you. Very Thanks. much a treat. Thanks, Dan. Yep. What's your, what's your, 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 your audience? Thank you. Thank you, Father. Could you, could you pray for us before we, before we leave? I will. Let us pray. God, our Father, you call all of us to hear the word of your Son as he speaks it in the world and to be his disciples. Let his life transform ours. Help us to hear his word and to keep it. Help us to walk in your presence. Help us to be nourished by your sacraments, by faith in you. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. So thank you, Father.